as we as we kind of discussed last week, we're walking through. And when I had, by the way, when I had this planned out, I think I had like three things we were going to talk about. It's turned out to be like twelve things. So, uh, which is making me want to do it one more week. I'm thinking next week will be like a little bit more of what, we're, what we've been talking about, plus a summary of everything we've talked about. Like, what does all of this of this mean? Um, but we are we talked about four things last week. Um, we talked about four what we, what we we could call clues for God. What were they? Does anybody remember what they were? Personal experience. Thank you, Lauren. The Bible, like the history of the Bible. Yeah. Cosmological argument. That's right. Um, cause and effect. And then the fine-tuning argument. Yeah. So those four things. Um, there's a there's a there's a book called uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments for the Existence of God or something like that by Alvin Plantinga. I encourage you to pick that up. It's really good. Um, actually, he. It, these are his thoughts, but they have a bunch of different authors writing each chapter. It's like two dozen or so arguments, and I, it's really helpful if you're looking for something to pick up. Uh, obviously, you can't recommend enough Reason for God. This this talk today will be based around the Reason for God a lot. Um, I'm going to put some, I know I said this last week, I'm going to just probably put two or three videos in the group message to supplement everything we've been talking about this week and, la- and, and last week. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about two more, maybe a third, and if we have time at the end, I'll like rank them. I'll do like a tier list of arguments for God, okay? And you might wonder why that, why we'll do that. I don't know. I think it's helpful to, to know what the best <coughs> arguments are. Uh, the last thing is, because I'm speaking tonight and because I was uh, on a trip all week, uh, you, I'm, I'm going to just apologize. You'll have to forgive me. These concepts that we're talking about, I don't. I mean, you'll probably notice I'm not going to be as like, um, you know, crisp. Maybe I'm not ever crisp, but I certainly won't be as crisp as I normally am. Like I, I don't have as good a grasp as I would like. So I'm praying that God would allow this to come out better than it should. Um, so just bear with me, and uh, we'll, we'll probably wrap up, you know, not not at 10.40, maybe a little before. All right. Here's clue number five, if you're, if you're following along. And you could just say the clue from beauty slash meaning slash love slash desire. The clue from beauty, meaning, desire, love, that there is a God. I think we touched on this a little bit last week, but I want to expand on it. And I'll do this by sharing a story. Um, uh, Years ago, I was a sophomore in college. I got a call from my uncle, who was was in Oxford, and he was in Oxford. And he said, come over to my friend's house. He was the head head coach of the men's tennis team. Come over to Billy's house. And uh, it's me and your aunt and Billy and his wife and this girl. She's come. She's going to play the fiddle for us. And I said, you know, I didn't want to go necessarily because, you know, 
listening to fiddle playing just in general hasn't always been a hobby of mine. Uh, but also, it just sounds kind of like an awkward setting. I mean, it's my aunt and uncle, the men's tennis coach and his wife, and this woman, okay? But my uncle's very generous. I love him. And I, f- I couldn't say no, so I said yes. Drove out there. It's dark, and they're on the porch. And, uh, you know, we, we sit down and we talk a little bit, and then this woman's name, her name is Bonnie Rideout. And she, you know, at some point, 10, 15 minutes in, uh, I'm sitting on a chair by myself. It's, it's a nice night. It's dark. It's quiet. Um, and she says, all right, I'm going to play this, you know, however many hundreds of years, it's a five to eight hundred years old Celtic jig. <laughs> um, and, it's, uh, and, and it's a story. It's actually a story. It's about six minutes long about this boy. And he, like, it's a coming-of-age story. And he goes through all these ups and downs, and he comes back home and all this stuff. She told the story. I don't really remember the story, but something like this. And there's his father's in there somewhere. But anyways, she's like, and then she kind of looks at me because maybe she thought I was a little out of, obviously I was out of place. I mean, I'm 19, sitting there, like, you know, listening to this. And she said, all right, I want you to just sit there and let the music wash over you. I was like, okay, whatever. But I gave it a shot. I gave it a shot. And uh, she started playing. This is like a world-renowned fiddle, fiddlist. That's what they call him. And, uh, fiddler. Fiddler. <laughs> And she starts playing, and maybe you'll think this is weird. You started crying. But I, it was as if my soul left my body. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. For she, it felt like 30 minutes, but it was only five. I can't explain it. It was one of, it, it was one of those things where she probably, if she didn't even tell me what the story was about, I could have told you what the story was about. And there was no words. It's just a, she's just playing fiddle. It was unbelievable. It was the closest thing to a spiritual experience outside of anything to do with Jesus that I've ever had. It was it was ridiculous. I, I, and and really since then I've I've grown to appreciate things like musicals and stuff like that because I'm kind of like searching for that again because it was such an outwardly it was such an weird experience. Some of y'all are nodding your heads. I can see you've had some sort of taste of this. You know what this is like. Some of you. And it doesn't have to be art or music. I mean, we were at the Modern Museum of Art, or the Museum of Modern Art, and uh, we got to see Starry Night. The Van Gogh paintings there. Uh, It didn't quite grab me like that, but it is, you know, you sit there, I don't know if you've ever been to a a really nice museum with, with stuff like that, that have grabbed people for hundreds of years, or if you've looked at the Sistine Chapel, and you've had those moments. It doesn't have to be art, though. It could be uh, moment like when your your first child was born, or your second or third, or whatever, and you're holding your baby, and this is, you know, everybody's told you about this, but you can't really explain what it's like. Um, what am I trying to describe? I'm trying to describe meaning, this idea that beauty is all around us, and and when it all clicks, when it's perfectly makes sense, it just feels like. Uh, there's something more to this world, this life. Um, 
But I want to ask you, how would the, the naturalist explain how we're here? How would someone who doesn't believe in God explain how we got here? We talked a little bit about this last week, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to give a summary. Uh, tr- billions, trillions of years ago, there was nothing. There were these physical laws uh, that, uh, to, the, to the universe that gave itself the ability to spring itself into action and spun the universe onward over the course of billions of years from the Big Bang. All this matter spread forth creating planets and stars that gave off heat. And there was this one galaxy, uh, and there was this one solar system in that galaxy that was the perfect, that had a planet that was the perfect amount of you know, distance from the sun to create biological life forms that could have originated from asteroids or whatever. We don't really know where those come, came from. But then these single-celled organisms developed, And over the course of billions and billions of years, evolved through a process of random genetic mutation to create human beings. And we know that the universe is going to one day end the way that it began. And so that's you. That's who you are. You're the process of all of this. Okay? And if you believe that, you have to reckon with the idea that, or the reality that there are some consequences we have to face if there is no God. If he does not exist, there are some consequences we have to face. For example, Richard Dawkins says this. This is the first quote here. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but but blind, uh, pitiless indifference. If there is no God, everything in this world is the product of what Bertrand Russell calls uh, an accidental collocation of atoms. If that's who you are, then there's no actual purpose for which we were made. We're accidents. And if we're the product of accidental natural forces, then what we call beauty is nothing but a neurological hardwired response to, to certain data. You only find certain scenery beautiful because of some ab- adaptive advantage that your ancestors have. Like there might be food there in Yosemite because this is a beautiful place. In the same way, though music feels significant, that significance is an illusion. Love too must be seen in this light. If we're the result of blind natural forces, then what we call love is simply a biochemical response inherited from ancestors who survived because this trait helped them to survive. Do you see what I'm saying? All of the experiences that you feel that make you feel like there's some meaning or there's some significance to this life is not that. It's actually just a neurological response to certain data that you're perceiving. Are are you all following with me? So what would you say to that? I mean, again, because the universe uh, that, w- that was created was random and meaningless, everything we experience is random and, random and meaningless. But is that what we feel to be true? Um, at some point, does our subjective perception of the world and our lives give us a clue to some objective reality? I'm going to say that again. At some point, does our collective, uh, collective subjective is kind of an oxymoron, but at some point, does our subjective 
perception of our lives point to some objective clues about the universe? What would y'all what do y'all think about that? Does that make sense? I know it's kind of a think about that. Does our subjective perception of things tell us about something that's real and true? I mean, I think so. I think it does. I think it points to something else. Uh, In Keller's Reason for God, he notes a few naturalists who are shaken by this reality. This might seem like not a very good point. And again, if I rank these, I would put this, if you're going to go like S, A, B, C, D, E, I would say this like a B or a C. But I'm going to get there. Bear with me. Uh, In Keller's Reason for God, he notes a few naturalists who are shaken by this reality, that their experience don't square with with their perceived essence. They testify to the fact that even though we as secular people believe that beauty and love are just biochemical responses, in the presence of great art and beauty, we inescapably feel that there is real meaning in life. There is truth and justice that will never let us down. And love means everything. Again, you might think, you might think, so what? So art's beautiful, and we feel that there's meaning, but that doesn't prove anything. I, 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 I agree, but I don't think we're just talking about feelings here. I think we're talking about something more. Uh, Keller explains this. He says, I think a better way to describe it is to think of it as an appetite or a desire. This is the famous quote from Lewis, number two. There, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. St. Augustine in his confession reasoned that these unfulfillable desires are clues to the reality of God. How so? Indeed, as it was uh, objected earlier, just because we feel the desire for a steak dinner doesn't mean we're going to get it. But while hunger doesn't prove that that particular meal desired will be procured, doesn't the appetite for food in us mean that food exists? Isn't it true that innate desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them, such as sexual desires corresponding to sex, physical appetite corresponding to food, tiredness corresponding to sleep, and relational desires corresponding to friendship? We have these desires, and there's a real thing that happens. But this unfulfillable longing evoked by beauty, meaning, and love uh, qualifies as an innate desire. We have this longing that no amount of food, no amount of sex, no amount of friendship or success can satisfy us. We want something that nothing in this world can fulfill. Isn't that at least a clue that this something that we want exists? So that is one clue, one argument for God, that there is something out there that we long for, that we can't reach, but it's there. And it, again, we, we, we as Christians draw this conclusion to be God. Any thoughts? Any rebuke? Any agreements? Were you asking that question about, like, as if we were the naturalists? Yeah. Okay. I think that's maybe why we, maybe why I was confused. Okay. What what question? About the subjective, like. Oh yeah, no. I, I'm going to do that in a second, actually. But um, what was what was the thing I just said? Does our subjective yes? Does our subjective perception of the world and our lives point us to something objective? I mean, that's just a question for everybody. I think it does. I think that's the best. Again, the answer to this, and we'll come back to this at the end, but the answer to this from the naturalist perspective is that it is random and meaningless. You You can't logically say that it's more than that, even though we feel it. 
It is random and meaningless, and we've gotten it because of some adaptive advantages that our ancestors had years and years ago. Um, but it's nothing more than that. This love that you feel for your spouse, the love that you feel for your child, the meaning that you, that you feel when you hear a great piece of art or, or see a great piece of art is, uh, is nothing more than that. It's just response, neurological responses. Does that square with your experience? I, it doesn't for me. And again, this is like a mid-tier argument, but I'm going to stack up a lot of mid-tier arguments that's going to make it a good argument. Okay. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? I mean, what a depressing way to yeah. view life if that is your perspective. Like, why, why yeah. do you have any desire to go on and go live? Mm-hmm. So do you think that a naturalist would answer yes to that question, or do you think they would say no and then try to, like, argue? Well, they w- uh, I think they would s- – I think – they would say the best ones would probably just have a big question mark. They would say, I don't know what this is, but I feel it, and I'm going to live like it's real. But it's, it's still, not. But it's still not there's a quote. There's a quote. Um, gosh, I can't remember who it is, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's, it's a, I think it sums up what I'm trying to say. The greatest news in the world is that Jesus died and rose from the grave, and he, and he loves us like that or something like that. But that greatest news actually didn't historically happen. So he's, what he's saying is like, it's not real. But this, but isn't that awesome? Yeah, if it yeah. were real, yeah. like, could, wh- why don't we just live like that's real? Like there is a God, but there's not one. So I don't know how to square that away. I mean, that's that's I think. Um, I think that yeah, that's that's what I. Mean. Probably Do you think they would make the argument that it's <coughs> that part of the process of like continuing to evolve, saying like mm-hmm. our minds need to always want something more, yeah, because we're going to continue this evolutionary process of becoming better and stronger or something. Definitely, like that? definitely, that's what they would say. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but I, I think this next one is going to bring us a little bit closer to seeing why that's foolish. Or seeing why that doesn't rationally connect. Um, so if they said true. that, could you say, "Hold on, I have something," <laughs> and then go to like, I don't, I'm just trying to like no, make it applicable. No, here's here. I don't want to jump the gun, but what I'm trying to say is, like last week, like last week, what was one of the things we talked about? Fine-tuning argument, which is. The, the, the odds that the universe and the life as we know it developed are infinitesimally small. So how do you get away with that? Well, they come up with a theory which is called the multiverse theory. That's the leading theory. Okay, So it's sort of like there's an answer to these questions that we as theists you know, say, how could this world be without a God? They have answers, but... I'm, I just think our answers are better. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I think. They're answers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, that there's a reason not everybody. There's a reason intellectual naturalism is like increasing. It's because they have these answers. I don't. But they're not very believable. But. Yeah. And I listened to an interview yesterday, too, which is kind of like one guy said. Uh, Douglas Murray, I don't know if y'all read or listen to any of stuff he does. Really smart guy, but he's um, he's uh, not a, he's not a believer in God. He's he's gay. He wrote a book called Madness of Crowds. He's he, you've probably seen him a lot. He's a very smart guy, 
Well, he's in this interview with the theist and another guy named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but another Tom Holland. <laughs> and, uh, Part of the multiverse. Yeah, yeah. multiverse. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he would say, again, this big, this big question mark, I have these answers, but at the end of the day, we both kind of do this thing where it's like the evidence kind of leans toward what we were already thinking anyway. So if you're already thinking skeptically, you know, you're going to find reason to believe skeptically. Yeah. So good questions, though. I do think it's a good point, too, because I think it's just very practical that you can look at the history of the world, you know, no one's ever satisfied, no matter how much money you have, no matter what you have, like, or the ruler of, you know, Julius Caesar in Rome or whatever, like, no one is ever, ever satisfied with what they have here, no matter what they have. And I think that points to your argument and, you know, C.S. Lewis's quote number two, that we have yeah. to be married for something more, right? Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Um, thanks for engaging. That That's, I think y'all are thinking well, thinking, thinking rightly. Uh, okay, so number six, clue number six. The argument from morality. The argument from morality. This is the big one. This is the, for my money, I would say the first or second, and we'll get to the other first or second, best argument that, uh, that we have. So I hope I don't ruin it. But um, I'll, I'll think of it like an illustration like this. Um, I was in, like I was sharing with some of y'all before the class started, I was in Philly, uh, I was in New York. There's a lot of homeless people there. And, I'm, and as I share this illustration, I want, you to, I want you to try to be the naturalist, you, as in all of you. I want you to try to answer me, like you just were, as the naturalist. How would you explain this, okay? Imagine I'm walking in Philly, and let's, let's kind of ramp up the emotions. Let's say it's not a homeless, you know, man with a beer in his hand, but it's a like a nine-year-old girl, and she's homeless. And um, somebody walks by and gives her, um, you know, a sandwich, Philly cheesesteak, and uh, she's emaciated, she's starving. And somebody walks by, six-five dude, jacked. Uh, he's also hungry clearly not starving, but he's hungry. He pushes her down, takes the sandwich from her, and eats it. What's your reaction to that? What would you say about that? That's natural selection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, okay, hold on, hold on. You're, you're jumping the gun, you're jumping the gun. No, you don't have to be, no, no, what, you're jumping the, what do you feel? What is that? Anger. You're angry. Yeah, you would say that's wrong, that's unjust. Okay, now be the pessimist. So now, okay, but how can you say that? How can you say that that's wrong? Because he's jacked. He's not hungry. But what what does that matter? Survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. You have this sense, but why? What makes you feel like you're right and this guy's wrong? Yeah, but they would say some chemical thing back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something like that, well, I guess. Well, she's a young little girl, and he's a grown man. I don't know. Yeah, 
But what, but what gives you the right to say that that's wrong? Because it, it is. It's wrong. But just because it is. I think that's where... No, that's, that's the answer that you have to just end up. Just because just it is, all right? It's just true. Um, but, but we're living like where true isn't true anymore. Yeah, but okay, so... And then another thing is, what if we saw this in the, uh, in the animal world? Uh, and you saw, you know, I don't know, some version, similar, parallel story like this happening in the animal. Or you just, you just saw uh, a, a lion killing an innocent, you know, baby gazelle uh, for food. Uh, is, that, is that wrong? Why is it not wrong? If it's not wrong for this guy to do it, why is it not wrong for the lion to do it? Would you also uh, prosecute the lion? Would you want the lion to be held accountable? Again, do you see where I'm going with this? What makes human beings... We have feelings and emotions. So do animals. Oh, they do. But, okay, now you're getting into... You're not a naturalist anymore. You're not a naturalist anymore. I agree with you. We have a special human dignity that God has endowed us with because we've been made in His image. That's our answer. But what's the answer for the uh, for the naturalist? Why would human life have more value for a naturalist? I don't know. It doesn't. So logically, it right. doesn't. Right. <coughs> but we feel it does. The yeah. ones that are confused. I think the naturalist would argue that that's been some sort of cultural and sexual development that we have just fallen under the spell of yes. as we've developed, but it's not real. Right. And it doesn't separate us from the animals. Actually, it just mm-hmm. exists. But it helps us survive in society, and so we just keep doing it. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis. This is argument number three. This is a, this is how he became a believer, interestingly enough, or at least the path that we that he came to. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of this show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies, Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sins. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Um, what's he saying Uh, God is the best explanation for objective moral values and duties that's a pretty key phrase there God is the best explanation for objective moral values and duties objective is a key word which means something like this is an argument Plantinga uses if the Nazis won the war and brainwashed everybody in the world 
so that we all were Nazis. Their actions would still be wrong. That's objective moral values. Even if we all thought something different, the objective truth is that it's wrong. And uh, that's, that's, that's something we perceive about the world. Moral values and obligations exist independently of one's own opinion. So you see different cultures obviously handing, handing things out. Lewis and Mere Christianity is another book I would recommend. If you've not read it, read it like bump it up to like number one in your um, reading list. Uh, this, is, this is something he talks about. You know, we, we, we practice societally throughout history, we practice different, um, there's different variations of what is right and wrong, but there's always been a sense of moral obligation and duty. There's never been a society that has existed that would say it's great to stab people in the back, uh, that it's great to lie, cheat, and steal. There's never been a society that existed that would say uh, self-centeredness is the goal. Um, so we all have this sense of moral values and duties that are there within us. And the next question I have, this is, a, this is an interesting thing. <coughs> to, to your question, Ben, what, a, what, a, what an interesting way to live. Where does this lead us? If we were to just say that, okay, you're right, we don't, if, if, thinking as a naturalist, we don't have any reason to impose what's right and wrong on anybody because we are the random collocation of atoms. How, where does that lead us? If you just look at you know, our society, where has that led us as we are becoming increasingly uh, naturalist culture, secular culture? Um, let's read what Nietzsche has to say, say about this. Uh, back in the 1860s. This is what he said. This is a very famous passage here. This is, a, this is kind of a story, like a made-up story. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not set straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. What's he saying here? This is 1860s. You know, enlightenment is raging. What is he saying? I'm asking you to comment on a pretty... You know. Without God, what is the point? Yeah, without God, what is the point? That's definitely one thing. What else? This is Frederick Nietzsche, by the way, who was <laughs> uh, like one of the great Enlightenment thinkers, moving us away from the reality, like trying to prove. Like, why are we there is no living God. naturalist way? Like, wh like where's God? Like, yeah. we've taken him out of the. We've taken him out, and what's happened? It's terrible. Yeah. Empty space, colder. Because uh, he realizes that when you remove God from the equation, 
We have no we have no center, no moral thing that we can all agree upon. And that's been the case for throughout human history, by the way, that we've all had this sort of common sense that there is a God and that there is a right and wrong, and that as a society it is better to treat others uh, with the understanding that that's true. And if that's not, what happens if you just remove that all of a sudden? Society starts to decay, is what he's trying to say. And he recognizes that as a naturalist. Like, society is going to decay. Is this such a good thing that we're killing God? Right? That's kind of, that's kind of his big question. Is this a good thing? Um, so I think it's really interesting here. Um, it's 1040. I thought we were going to be a lot quicker than this. <laughs> All right. I've got uh, a couple more things to say that we'll have to finish with next week. And, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm going to have to leave you hanging. But there's, there's one way we can sort of wrap this up, and we'll just have to wait because it's 1042. Any other thoughts, though, questions that we can talk about before we go? There's another argument planting his whole chapter on this about how not only are those there are these physical laws in the universe that we observe, but they're always the same. Mm-hmm. They always are the same. And so he has this chapter on the reliability of the universe and that there's uh, uh, gravity is constant <coughs> and things like that and numbers are always, two plus two always equals four and that we live in a rational world. And he would say... Why is that true? Do we have to live in a rational world? Why is it that our existence is rational? It doesn't have to be when you think about it. Um, and then he also has a chapter on why is there something? Why is there something rather than nothing? And, and it's kind of the same. He's, he's kind of, again, these are all like, okay, that's a, that's a fair point, but it doesn't prove God. That's a fair point, but it doesn't prove God. But then you stack all these things up on top of itself, and at some point it's just kind of like, all right, it seems like theism is the best explanation for the universe, right? And then I, I think there's kind of a linchpin in the next two. Again, I think the next things we'll talk about, we'll summarize this and we'll do that. But thank you for, for saying that. Um, it makes sense to me too. And I, I kind of geek out and nerd, over, nerd out <laughs> over it. So, uh, like, I just quoted Frederick Nietzsche. So, um, but I know some of you don't, so thanks for bearing with me. And uh, one more week. And then we'll do some Advent stuff. All right? I'll pray for us.